Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Drew Johnson about some of his work on epistemology. Now, I usually like to try to record these uh, these intros to the episode right after I I have my discussion, but it's been like <clears throat> I don't know maybe four or five months since I actually did the interview with Dr. Johnson because I wanted to spend time reading some of his other works. Uh, Biblical philosophy, I think, was one, and, um, and ritual knowing, because there's, there's just so much in, uh, in the field of epistemology, and specifically just a lot from, from Dr. Johnson that uh, I like, and I wanted to have a, a fuller sense of, uh, of what was going on here and how to best introduce Dr. Johnson. I, I've come to realize that uh, most of the time I can keep my interviews to like an hour-ish. And it's not too hard to, you know, whittle it down a little bit if I'm going to go a little bit over. With Dr. Johnson, we went well over an hour, and I had to cut a lot of questions. And now after reading more of his work, I, my, my questions list has like tripled or quadrupled. So this is, this is, uh, this is a topic that when you get this discussion today, it is going to be just scratching the iceberg of, of what's important and what's out there. But hopefully it will cover enough and uh, it will be explanatory enough to, to be sufficient uh, for, for what we need here. Um, I'm currently not quite finished with his, his book, Ritual Knowing, but uh, I've read a little bit of it, uh, probably about half of it, and uh, we'll maybe pull a little bit from that here as I uh, prepare the introduction. So let's talk about some of the big ideas, big themes, important concepts that I want you to focus on uh, for our discussion, or as well as some things that maybe we won't get into that I think are important for you to know. So first of all, uh, Dr. Johnson is going to talk a little bit about uh, the, the idea of truth in the, the Hebrew Bible. And he's going to talk about how the word true is used of lots of different things that we would never, or it's it's weird for us to associate true with. So you know, we do have like sailors setting a true course, but you know, one of the things in the Bible that you you have that's really weird for us is like a true tent peg, and that's just that's just odd for us that true could mean something to that extent. Yet it's true in the Hebraic sense, in the sense that um, over time and circumstance, the the tent peg proves reliable. Uh, it proves it proves itself over time to function as it was intended to function, uh, and, and it's also what the New Testament seems to have in view. Uh, this isn't something that Dr. Johnson talks about, but if you get into uh, New Testament literature more so, and and some of the kind of evaluations of maybe where we've got, gone wrong uh, with modern Protestants at times, you get this idea of of faith. Uh, which is this, this concept that it's something that works itself out over time. It's something that produces fruit, that it produces works. So a true faith is a faith which, over time, proves itself through the production of good works. Because if we have the Spirit living in us, and, and we have a true faith, we're truly connected to God, then that Spirit should produce fruit within us. Now, there's a, a popular book title uh, called I think it's like salvation by allegiance alone, right? 
It, it, it uh, takes this, this idea of faith and says, look, faith means more than what we think it means is this blind Kierkegaardian leap of faith. Um, it, it, faith it has the connotations of allegiance, of proving yourself over time. And that concept just dovetails very nicely with what has been explored in, um, in this section so far leading up to the interview here with Dr. Johnson. These ideas of um, you know living out the ideal and and the production of fruit and um, and 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 all of that proving yourself faithful. So the the truth is an ideal that isn't at all idealistic. It's not going to be something that's pie in the sky. It actually works. Right? It proves itself faithful over time. The truth does. It just depends on on how you define it works. Right. If you define it works, the truth works, as something that gets you immediate gratification and results now, and it avoids the most suffering and pain in the near term, then lying may sometimes be a good route to take. Right? It might, for, for a moment, seem to show that it, it's going to work. But if you're a long-term thinker, if you're a kingdom builder uh, that wants to build something for the ages, something that stands then truth is always going to work better. Over time and circumstance, it proves itself uh, to, be, to be good, to be better. So in that sense, truth proves itself um, and, and capable and the, the best tool to build a good world. And it shouldn't be otherwise, because if a good God created a good world to function on good, then you'd expect choosing the good to have the tendency to work better. The hard part about this vision of truth, though, is that a new truth isn't immediately verifiable because truths aren't strictly propositional. When you're introduced to some, some new information, um, you can't just propositionally look at that thing and say, oh yeah, that's true, right? Because the Hebraic sense of truth is that it, it approves itself over time. Now, I know that this is a strange concept for a lot of us, that, that something is not going to be really propositional, that that's not going to work too well, because we're very propositionally minded here in the West. And Dr. Johnson goes to great lengths to, to try to lay out a case for how this is so, and he, uh, he digs into the work of uh, Michael Polanyi, who is somebody that I'd really like to read after I read Dr. Johnson. Uh, he's somebody I'd like to get to because... Um, his pushback against positivism, and which I think you still see the the remnants of today, it's um, I I think it's just so fascinating and so interesting, especially if you're interested in looking at uh, epistemology and science and how science, uh, you know, they they act like God, like they can explain everything and like it just works. There's so many undergirding assumptions and epistemological issues uh, with with that sort of thing, and Dr. Johnson just starts to scratch the surface on it and point you to some other people who are going to be able to, to uncover that. It's just fascinating. Um, but anyway, uh, this, this kind of concept is sort of one of the cruxes of Dr. Johnson's work, that you, you don't really learn propositionally because truth is known in community. It's known by, uh, it, it comes to be known by trusting authority and it's verified by being proven over time. 
And we don't like that because you can't really be confident. It's not like a you know, syllogism that you can just look at and be like, oh yeah, that's true. Right? It's something that is going to have to prove itself. And that means that uh, there's, there's a lot of caution and care that, that goes into choosing who we trust to be our guides towards truth. Not only uh, is Dr. Johnson's work great as, uh, as something new, but also something that kind of looks back on, on what we've already touched on, but I'm also putting his, uh, his episode right here because I think it's going to be a good stepping stone to what we've been talking about and what we're going to talk about soon. Um, this, this idea of the importance of truth leading into the concept of the formation of truth. How is truth formed? Uh, because what I'm going to argue, and what I've kind of been alluding to throughout this whole season, is that discipleship is the true counter-propaganda. It's the true propaganda killer. Um, the formation of truth in communities is what undermines the effectiveness of manipulative propaganda. So consider this episode as kind of the glue that's going to hold the past and the future together, uh, as well as bring up some, some new ideas that, um, that you're probably going to want to uh, go into uh, on the side because it's just such a, a, a rich field here. Um, but we're seeking to kind of culminate the season uh, with, with hope and application and, and bring it to a meaningful and uh, close that uh, also has some application uh, involved. So beyond that, um, there is another idea that I think is really important, or at least really interesting, but I think important and interesting, that I want to, uh, to highlight. Because we don't spend a ton of time on it, but it's so, so important, and I want to elaborate here. And that question that I've had for a long time, I've asked so many people, you know, um, how can we you know, if if we can't learn from, I don't know, let's say uh, for conservative Christians, if they have problems learning from a, a, uh, a gay Christian, if they think those things are oxymorons, you can't be gay, you can't be a Christian, um, and they, they'll say, no, I'm not going to learn from them. We're going to ban their books. We're not going to read them because they're not even truly a Christian. So how could I learn from them? What happens for those same conservative Christians who are going to want to learn from slaveholders? Whitfield, Edwards, I mean, quite a lot, right, from back in the, the day. Um, who ought we to apprentice under? Who can we learn from? Can we learn from slaveholders and abu abusers? Can we learn from somebody like Robbie Zacharias, who, before we knew he was an abuser, was just phenomenal, a phenomenal teacher, but after he's abuser, an abuser, does that really change the truth of what he's saying? Like, can we still learn from him? Yeah, I was, uh, I was just sitting through my first communion the other day after, uh, after getting into Ritual Knowing, and, uh, which, is, which is a book that kind of argues for this discipling sort of case where we come to know, and not, not just through community, but also through the practices of community, through rituals. And... Uh, I thought about communion. I was like, okay, well, communion is a ritual. So according to Dr. Johnson, I am learning something in this ritual, right? Was, it took me a while because I was like, what am, I, what am I learning? I'm just eating, I'm eating a piece of bread. I'm drinking wine. Okay, yeah, it, 
tells me symbolically about this this um, you know this act that Jesus did. But it, but uh, Dr. Johnson talks about how no 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 rituals are more than just symbolic. Like they they are actual um, portals or whatever into knowing true things about the the real world. And then it clicked for me. You know, I was sitting in that room with uh, men and women, of course, uh, old and young, of course, but people from different socioeconomic statuses. There's single mother in the room. Um, there were orphans in the room. There were poor people. There were well-off people. There were Germans. There were Americans. There were Canadians. There were Romanians. Um, no other nationality at that point, but we had also sometimes we have like Brazilians. You, you've got people from all over the place. And I was thinking back to, um, to Paul writing about, uh, about communion and um, the importance of, of that. And I was like, oh, there, communion is teaching me to break bread, to do this, this intimate act, like this, this thing. You don't just invite anybody into your house to eat with you. I mean, usually uh, you invite people who are family or close friends into your house to eat with you. But there was a great diversity of those that I ate with. And it clicked for me that it taught me, it was a precursor to, to knowledge. Like it, it taught me something that I didn't even know I was being taught. And that is that um, I am part of a diverse group and I am to value and love all people. Young, old, single mother, family, orphan, poor rich, uh, regardless of nationality, that's what communion was teaching me. It was having me sup, dine with all of those people. Yeah, you know, thinking about some of the churches that I visited here in Europe, uh, the black church here in Romania, uh, as one easy example for me, you go in there and you see how the pews were arranged aristocratically. <laughs> Uh, some of them you arrange them, you know, men on one side, women on another side. But then you'd have, you know, this is this this patron's pew, this family's pew, because they donated such and such an amount of money, and uh, and and then you think back to uh, the slaveholders and how they, um, you know, they might have sometimes split the churches, black churches and white churches, and the the Jim Crow South and stuff. And you're like, man, they have completely bastardized communion and not just bastardized this this ritual but like rituals are epistemic events they're things that teach you a truth about the world what truth like to hijack this this ritual of communion and to have aristocratic seating completely undermines the ritual of communion you know, I think to uh, to First Corinthians eleven, uh, where Paul shows us one of only two places that I'm aware of in the New Testament where a Christian's death is attributed to a particular sin. Um, the other instance that I can think of is with Ananias and Sapphira. Now, in First Corinthians eleven, Paul says uh, says something that's interesting. Now, oftentimes when when we go to communion, my whole life I've heard, "Hey, let's make sure we search our hearts and make sure that we don't have sin." 
uh, sin before God and uh, that we're not sinning, uh, also sinning against uh, a brother or sister. If, if they have something against us, let's make sure we take it to them. Yes, that's that's true, especially the second part, the sin against somebody else. Yeah, that's true. But in 1 Corinthians 11, there's even a much more specific focus that Paul has on why somebody died during, uh, why there's death during communion. Paul talks about some being weak and sick and some having died because of their handling of communion. And listen to the reason, starting in verse uh, chapter 11, verse 17. Here's what Paul says. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Now, it's no wonder that only a chapter later, about 40 verses on from from where I left off here, Paul goes on to write his famous love chapter. It's by our love for one another that people will know that we're the disciples of Christ. And 1 John talks all about love being the indicator that we know God and a lack of love indicating that we don't. And here, Paul is just so explicit that the reason people have died, the reason people are sick, is because you are, you are not eating as a family. You are creating divisions. You are being divisive. You are, and especially to those who are poorer than you, you are, you are excluding them. And the ritual of communion is a ritual that teaches us a vital truth about the world, and that is that all are loved by God, and that all are to be included, and God does not take it lightly when that type of thing is bastardized. Ritual is important because, uh, as Dr. Johnson says, quote, ritualized practice disposes one to recognize in order to finally discern, end quote. So you either see people as equal in value with you and worthy of love, or you don't. Or, through ritual, you come to see that. You come to see them as worthy of love by breaking bread and drinking wine with them. The broken body and blood of your King and Savior, a suffering servant who loved everyone and who is now partaking uh, of that meal. Uh, You are now partaking of that meal uh, with him. You come to know that everyone is valuable, not merely propositionally. In fact, you might propositionally know that someone is made in the image of God, yet still not value them. That proposition is something that you only truly, deeply know, proven in an act that we call embodiment, or, or living it out, or walking the walk, or not being a hypocrite, or a douchebag. You only truly come to know that proposition in a meaningful way through ritual and experience. Now, understanding this idea of epistemology and ritual is something that has made me much, much less open to including slaveholders and egregious sinners like uh, Ravi Zacharias, um, including them in my library. It's a, it's a hard, it's a difficult line here because we all recognize that we are, are sinners in need of God's grace. That's true. But there is something wickedly egregious about, about things like slaveholding and abusing people 
like that, like Ravi did, that shows just a a so a departure that's so far away from from Jesus Christ and the ritual of communion. This thing that's that's at the center of uh, Christian practice and ritual, like to to eat with people and then despise them and own them and abuse them. There's nothing farther from Christianity than that. And to have to apprentice under those people who do those kinds of things, it seems very uh, unwise, to say the least. And something that I don't, I don't really get is how a lot of conservative Christians would defend people like, uh, you know, Whitfield, or maybe even, uh, depending on your view of of Calvin and uh, you know Servetus or Servetus, however you say his name, and uh, the burning of people and the Inquisitions, like can those people? Can we learn from those people too? Um, you know, I I think that's a great question, but for for a lot of those people who might say well of course we can learn from Calvin we can still learn from Zacharias all those kinds of things um it's just interesting that a lot of those same people would say uh well we can't learn from uh the the german christians who placed themselves under hitler right and and didn't repent of that we can't learn from them and i think back to uh, to bonhoeffer and the aryan clauses that were that were inserted uh, were accepted by a lot of the churches and the capitulation that went on there. We don't give the Germans a pass as, oh, they were just men of their times, right? Um, can you imagine elevating those theologians like like some conservatives elevate, um, I don't know, Whitfield, Calvin, that kind of thing? It seems It seems very difficult to accept. I don't know. It's something I'm still thinking through, but uh, but that's Dr. Johnson addresses that very briefly. But it's something that uh, that as you read his work is a question that I think is really vital to ask and consider throughout. Anyway, like I said, I could I had so many more notes for the intro here. Uh, I could go on for a long time, but I think at that point it would just be more rambling. So hopefully, this uh, I've given you uh, two good big things to look out for, and uh, I've prepared you, and hopefully you enjoy the conversation with, with Dr. Johnson because he is, uh, he is much clearer and, uh, and more intelligent than I am. So here it is, the interview with Dr. Johnson. I have, I have done a lot, of, a lot of thinking and reading uh, about propaganda, um, but you know the, the reason I'm kind of coming to you is because um, I think it's so the way that I've set up the season is I want to go through propaganda in in a lot of different frameworks because there are lots of places that you can manipulate information. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that a lot of times it's really easy to kind of tear something down and 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 talk negatively about something. Mm-hmm. Um, but that oftentimes doesn't lead you to a place where you're able to really do anything with that. Um, and so epistemology, you know, I want to kind of end the season where it's like, okay, well, we've seen the way that truth is manipulated. We've seen the absence of truth. Let's talk about how do we foster and facilitate truth. And mm. so I, I read your book. I think I actually read Human Rights first. I was reading mm. J.K.A. Uh, Smith. Um, yep. James, some, Jamie Smith. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, some of his books and then your human rights went right along with that. Um, and then I, I picked up biblical knowing and I didn't, I didn't know that you had written human rights, but, um, I kind of made that connection later, but those Mm -hmm. were, were two influential books as I was thinking about the positive case for what truth is. Um, so if, before we kind of get into some of the, the, uh, tough questions, if you would maybe just give some of your background and, um, your, what brought you to studying epistemology? Oh Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and um, I failed out of high school in the early 90s, like 90, 91. And uh, I joined the Air Force and I spent, you know, seven years going to college and in the reserves and deploying. And it's the 90s. So I was doing a lot of counter narcotics work down in South America and Colombia specifically uh, in order to pay for college because this is before September 11th. And, it was before the gravy train GI bill that they have now, uh, where I got like a hundred bucks a month, uh, when I was in school. Um, and I, and I became a Christian when I was in college, um, and, and three years into the military. Um, and I think because of my combat experience, which was not heavy combat, but it was enough to charm me awake from any slumbers I had about like my naive views that humans are basically good and given the opportunity, they will basically do good. Not, you know, that was all blown down pretty quickly. Um, and including myself, I was doing things that I wouldn't have thought that I would have done morally. Um, uh, and eventually I kind of had to reckon with like, wait, how, how do humans get to these levels? So when I became a Christian and a friend kind of guided me towards going to seminary because he saw that I was interested in theological issues, even though I was headed towards a PhD in psychology, he was like, I think you would like seminary better. And and as soon as he described it to me, I was like, yeah, actually, that sounds awesome. Uh, And I loved seminary. I loved my experience there. My professors were great. It was a covenant seminary, which is the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. It's their only seminary. Uh, so, and it wasn't really stuck in, fortunately, my systematic theology professor who was a mentor was also a Vietnam vet and was an atheist who became a Christian in Vietnam, like in a foxhole kind of a situation, Michael Williams. And uh, it was great. But even then there was kind of this headiness in the Presbyterian church. And I was, I was all about like, man, if it's not real life experience, I want nothing to do with it. Like, you know, let, let, let's quit the talk. Let's do walk. walk. I only care about how you walk this out. And I, and I think they were really into that as well, at least notionally. Um, they, they believed in that and they kind of burned that into me. To wit, at Covenant, believe it or not, I did not know this until I was in my PhD program, um, but most seminaries don't require their professors to have any pastoral experience whatsoever. <laughs> So covenant, it's a requirement to be a professor there. You have to have at least five years of some kind of pastoral experience or ministry experience. Um, So there was that angle on it as well. But I just really got into like uh, because of I came from a, a, you know, broken home. I married a woman who was from a broken home. I had these experiences in the military that kind of shook me up. I was looking for solidity. I like, I wanted to know, how do you know things? Like, how can you trust anything in this world? Cause I had had a lot of experiences that basically taught me don't trust anybody, anytime, anywhere. Uh, all people will fail, let you down or connive against you or try to kill you. That was the other one that I learned as well. So, 
So it was not theoretical for me. I was actually very concerned about how can anybody say they know anything with any solidity or any firmness to it. Um, and that's when I ran into Esther Meek. Uh, I read Michael Polanyi, uh, this person who was obviously a huge inspiration, who was a chemist, you know, turned social scientist, turned philosopher. Um, and he really talked about, and of course I had studied, I was very interested in research methods in college and I was very interested in statistical, like statistics blew my mind. Cause I was like, this is, this is the most magical form of math I've ever run into. Cause like none of this makes like, I don't know how this works. Uh, the math works itself out, but how it actually works metaphysically in the universe was so bizarre to me. Um, so I was fascinated by that. And I had a philosopher, or sorry, a, a scientist turned philosopher who was now explaining to me like, yes, this actually is a little bit magical. Uh, yes, it's, it is a group of people who trust each other, who, who explore the world and let the world kick back and tell them when they're wrong. Um, and at the end of the day, they have things that they believe, like the bell curve uh, and power analyses, where you just go like, I have no idea how it works. It just does. And it seems to work in lots of different areas. So um, so as soon as I started reading that, I was like, I want more of this. These people who are talking openly and honestly about what real knowing is about. And they're not talking about absolute truths and you know, kind of unicorn ideas, like something is either absolutely true or objectively true or it's not. They're actually talking about real truth in the real world. And at the same time, I'm doing lots of biblical exegesis in Hebrew and Greek. And I'm like, wait, this is how the biblical authors talk about truth is real truth in the real world. They don't ever talk about absolute or objective truth. They don't ever frame truth as some kind of objective, absolute thing. They talk about truth as something that could be known over time and over circumstance and something can be, um, true in, in, in rich ways in which it's seen differently but and understood differently, but still true. And so I would kind of became obsessed with plugging away at this question of like, what do the biblical authors think truth was? Because they talk about truth, not a lot, but enough to where it's an important issue for them. And, and I was looking to figure out what they said. And so when I had the opportunity, opportunity to do PhD work, that's when I was just like, all right, I'm going to dig in and figure out what the Torah says about knowing and knowing the truth. And then what do the gospel say? What does Jesus say? Um, and then low, and I'd already taken another master's in philosophy at that point. So I kind of had heard what analytic philosophers thought about truth uh, and all, <clears throat> all the very, <clears throat> excuse me, the various ways in which they frame truth. And I'm looking at the biblical authors going, well, this is not how the biblical authors talk about truth. And I was hearing how Christian analytic philosophers were talking about truth. I'm like, that's not the whole shebang. Um, so that that is basically what just fueled the fire. And that was so biblical knowing the book you uh, read second was actually my very first book, which was based a lot on my mainly on my. Is like how the Bible is is in many senses, its own philosophical tradition. If, if a intellectual historian were looking at ancient texts and people, they would say, oh, the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament following it, it's just another intellectual tradition, like the Greco-Roman tradition, like the Chinese tradition. Like there's many ways in which it looks just like a philosophy, uh, a philosophy text in many ways. So that's what I'm interested in these days. All right. You didn't yeah. ask for half of that. So no, no, no. That, but it, it, you know, the information that, that you give always ends up, um, you know, being helpful because, uh, so I'm in the PCA 
um, mm. with with Mission to the World, and oh, yeah. um, understanding your experience um, that that is that is very much um, our experience, and a, a lot of people that we talk to, some of our close friends, um, just this you know the the frozen chosen, the focus mm. on uh, orthodoxy to the uh, you know uh, kind of leaving orthopraxy by the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the, there's a there's a very bad taste in in uh, our mouths for that kind of thing, and trying to figure out how to remedy that remedy that. And I think that um, you know that understanding kind of helps a lot because you know the first the first question that I had lined up for you was you talk about uh, the errors that we have in our in our thinking and in our actions being remedied by social interaction. Um, you mm. say social inter- interaction, not singular reasoning upon singular propositional beliefs. And I think a lot of times um, we we fail to kind of see truth as something that's embodied, but something that's maybe a little bit more abstract, but at the same time concrete, something that's objective, mm-hmm. like you said. Um, and so one of the things as I've been going through propaganda is – you know, Jacques Ellul talks a lot about how propaganda basically forms communities, mm-hmm. um, and and what you what you end up discovering is that they're not really true communities. They're they're kind of like um, like a lot of American sorts of things, right? They're they're like these fickle facades um, of um, or like these these cheap toys that you buy in the store that break a second mm-hmm. later. Like they look really good on the outside, but they're they're just empty. Um, so these these just hollow echo chambers. And so your your idea of embodied truth, uh, and like I said, reading through James K. Smith stuff too, um, just just that idea of like physical, tangible truth building together through discipleship, I think is is foundational to fighting propaganda, which is just fake community, fake relationship, right. um, fake truth, uh, fake authentication, which is something that we'll get to later. Um, but could you could you just explain? why discipleship and communal participation like what does that have to do with truth yeah i mean discipleship is obviously a, a, a it's become a christianese word right that's loaded with all kinds of ideas but if you just say apprenticeship which is discipleship at least has elements of apprenticeship in it um and i and this is you know the idea that there are certain people who well, you can think of any skill where there's people who know how to do the skill and then and then there's people who know how to do that perform that skill and they know how to coach others into the skill which those are not always the same thing right so there are people who are really expert at some topic but you should never put them in a classroom with people because they don't know how to coach people to see what they're trying to show them <clears throat> and there are various techniques you know i'm a i'm a teacher by trade and so like i i've come to realize you know, you come into teaching as a content mechanism, delivery mechanism. They even talk about this sometimes in the worst versions of higher education. Um, and it really is what kinds of paces you're going to put people through in order to see the thing that you're trying to show them uh, and developing these skills. So apprenticeship has to happen within a community. And if you think about all of the things, you know, if you think about just knowledge, what we the kinds of knowledge that we value most in our world like I would put medical knowledge right up there really high, like the, and not, you know, uh, you know, maybe it's not, we don't put it next to spiritual knowledge or something like that knowledge of God, but just practically speaking, if something goes, you know, if someone collapses right now, medical knowledge is the most valuable knowledge in the room. 
if you have a million dollars, financial investment knowledge is the most valuable uh, knowledge in the room. Um, so when you look at like, well, how do people become expert uh, or plumber? You know, I've got a leak in my roof last night because of Hurricane Ian has come through and it rained on us for four days and we discovered a, a leak in our roof. A roofer's knowledge right now is the most valuable knowledge in my house. I'll probably end up paying thousands of dollars to have somebody come in and say like, oh, here's the problem, right? Or plumbers or something like that. Uh, those people don't develop that by reading, you know, you could say like, well, I learned it on my own. But when people say I learned something on my own, they actually meant they read a book or they watched YouTube now, you know, uh, they watched videos where somebody was able to form a community with that person, even if it's a one-on-one -on -one, and instruct them uh, and give them all kinds of various embodied techniques to perform until they could see the thing that they were trying to show them, the abstract thing. So you talk about the abstract and concrete. Um, I, you know, I've got four kids who are now, you know, teens up into their twenties, but I remember like one of the work, the hardest things to teach my kids in our community of learning, which whenever you have kids, there's always learning community going on, um, is the idea of healthy, um, which is a really weird, it's a modern concept that something is healthy or not. So you look at food and you say, oh, that's not healthy. When you say that's not healthy, you're appealing to like seven different criteria. Uh, and, you know, because obviously something would be, some things are healthy in certain contexts where they're not in another, or, or we mean, oh, that's not healthy if you eat too much of that or something like that. But healthy is a really abstract, fuzzy logic uh, concept. And the only way to learn it is with someone pointing out over your shoulder, like, this is healthy and this is why it's healthy. This is why. And at some point you're going to say why it's healthy. You're going to explain, well, this is how the body works. Here's how many calories, right? Okay. Uh, pure grain alcohol, not healthy because your, your kidney can only process so much alcohol and any amount of that is already over that limit, right? Um, so that kind of sociological bond is required for us to know anything with any level of uh, degree of skill. Um, and that description of knowing that I just, you know, sloppily danced around in all those different aspects None of that is accounted for in modern philosophical. And I mean, and if you look at apologetics curriculum, you know, 90% 90, 90 of apologetics discussions are not built on any of that kind of knowledge, which we would consider natural knowledge. I would call that the biblical view of knowing. It's predicated on actually um, an enlightenment view of knowledge that uh, says there are just things that are facts. They're abstract entities. They either are true or they're not true. They call them propositions. Um, and the goal is to figure out what's what propositions are true and arrange them in logical order in order to figure out what is true and, and what we can know. Um, so those are two very different discussions. I'm with uh, some Christian philosophers who say the biblical view of truth and knowing is the broad, real, full, full shebang view of knowing. And within that, you can still have things like um the idea of propositions, which can or can't be true. Like th that's, but that's the subset conversation. And so I think for, at least for Christians, what we want to do is have the full conversation and then figure out where these other little boutique versions of truth fit within that fuller context. So, so if I hear you cor uh, correctly, it's, it's more, you're not advocating that this is the only way that we arrive at knowing, but you're, you're saying it's part of, of, of a holistic approach to knowing. Um, I, no, I'd still say it's the only way we arrive okay. at knowing, you know, uh, in a sense, in that broad sense of nobody comes to know anything by themselves. 
Um, but once you have mastered the skill, so think about like learning your additions, your times, division tables, your addition and mathematics. So when I was a kid in the seventies, like at school, they just give you mimeograph sheets of, you know, you just had to go fill out as fast as you could do it in under a minute, all the times tables, all the addition tables, all that. Right. And, um, so that was a communal activity in which I was apprenticing. And, and then once I had that skill, I, on my own, could extend my my newfound skill of multiplication into other domains, uh, into new domains, right? But we would never say that, you know, if you said, well, how do you know that this is mathematically true? I wouldn't say, well, I just know it because I know all math and I learned it all myself. And we'd say, no, no, no I'm extending a skill that was burned into me through rituals of repetition, right? And, and various other rituals of mathematics. I mean, repetition is just one uh, ritual of learning, so... Um, so anytime we talk about, so when people typically say, well, there's three types of knowing, knowing who, knowing how, and knowing what, and knowing what is really the one we're in, in, you know, most interested in knowing facts and those kind of things. What they're really talking about is an extension of the knowing how knowledge, all the skilled knowledge is burned in through various rituals of communal uh, apprenticeship. And then, and then we can extend those of abstract entities, metaphors, you know, we can make metaphor, make sense of met, new metaphors that never have been used before. And we can do all kinds of things. Um, we, you know, we can make computers and stuff, but that, but that is all extending uh, traditions uh, of knowledge. So let, let's jump to um, maybe what would be the opposite of that. You know, in, in your book, um, you talk about are a lot of times uh, some of the Christians desire to have particular beliefs logically arranged. And then uh, you said that this data mining approach offers a pretense of submission to scripture, which I think, um, you know, is, is very accurate. Um, and so our, our view of epistemology, that there are these objective truths and we can just kind of know them intellectually Um then when we go to scripture, we believe that we're submitting to scripture because we can assent to certain propositional beliefs. Right. But obviously, uh, you don't you don't think that that's the case. So can you talk about the the modern, especially the evangelical church, um, how how they propositionalize the Bible? And I think the common pushback to that is, well, yeah, but if I can't do that, then how how does the Bible have any authority um, if I can't mm. take it at face value, if these propositions aren't really propositions, but something that I have to uh, learn some other way? Yeah, I think, can I answer another question that you didn't ask first in order to answer that question, which is, Definitely, yeah. you know, what's the view of truth here, right? So the biblical, and by biblical, I mean, when you look across scripture, all the different ways they're using true and false, what we translate as true and false, amen, which is aman, emuna, uh, 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 where we get amen from, amen, amen, truly, I, truly, truly, I say to you, right? Um, one of the interesting things you'll find is they're actually not using truth as a noun the way we use it. Uh, they're most often using true true as a verb. Like a carpenter would say, I need to true up this line so that I can nail it in, which means I need to kind of get it where it ought to be. Um, and that gives you kind of all the conceptual girth you need to understand everything that is said in scripture about truth, including when Jesus, because you think about if, if truth is like a proposition that is either true or false, then you have Jesus stand there going, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you're like, well, how is Jesus true and not false? And anything you say after that breaks your paradigm of something as either true or false, objectively and uh, speaking, right? So true, my my friend uh, Yoram Hazoni, who's an Israeli philosopher uh, and biblical scholar, he he says, look, in, in Hebrew, and I think this continues perfectly into the New Testament, true means it does what it ought to do over time and circumstance. So in Hebrew Bible, they'll talk about a true road, a true tent peg. Uh, a, I mean, you can think of like a true report, you know, that as it's investigated, and here's here's where the whole, the the modern paradigm of something is objectively true or objectively false. It just is that way. Here's where it falls apart. How do you have a true tent peg according to uh, scripture? Well, it's, the tent peg does what it ought to do, do over wind and rain, or rock is a foundation. If you want to go to Jesus's parables, right? Versus sand. Sand will not act as a foundation over time and circumstance. It will deteriorate. And so in, in Hebrew, conceptually, they would say sand is an untrue uh, foundation for a house. We use this in uh, nautical terms, a true course, set a true course, which means I want to go, you know, if you think about a sailboat, sailboats have to tack and bob and weave. Um, but the true course is the one that sticks on the intended line. Uh, again, in carpentry, we talk about cuts. True, you know, that's a true cut. I drew a line on the wood, and my cut is really close to the line that I intended. Over time and circumstance of my hand going up and down and zigzagging and sawing, it's a true cut. That's or a true spouse. Be true to your spouse. Over time and circumstance, when opportunities arise, I stay true. I do what I ought to do over time and circumstance. That so, and we have this kind of concept in our world. But then we have this other very recent concept that something is either objectively or subjectively true um, uh, that is kind of interrupting the circuits. So um, going back to your original question, which I've now forgotten, <laughs> but it has to do with this. Yeah. Um, so I was just asking, especially in evangelical circles, you've got this this idea that they propositionalize the Bible Right, and right. they say, well, you know, if we can't take it at face value uh, as an authority, then how, do, how does it have authority? Yeah. So in the same way that Jesus has, I mean, Jesus stands and has authority. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, well, now, now knowing that's the, his view of truth, um, we can say, oh, it makes sense why he says I'm the way. Over time and circumstance, living in his way, which, by the way, that's a Torah, that's a Deuteronomic way of describing things, the way of Yahweh. Um, that it, living in this way will do what it's supposed to do over time and circumstance. Even when it doesn't look like it, you know, at certain times it will, it will be, uh, it will lead to life over time and circumstance, uh, even over the circumstance of death itself. Um, so even when, you know, you read a disciple who's saying God is good, right? Um, and of course, if you're coming out of the Hebrew Bible, you can say like, yes, I agree with that proposition. However, I also know, as a matter of fact, that in the Hebrew Bible, I don't know, a dozen or more times, it very openly describes God as doing evil, committing evil, relenting from evil. Like, they are not afraid at all to relate evil with God, right? To associate it with God, to make some of his actions described as evil, which for us, we're like, wait, does that mean God is evil? You know, we freak out, we try to propositionalize it, we try to make it the nature of God himself and say, no, no, no. They have a more robust 
view of good and evil than we have us for it's you know talk about propositions good and evil are like a light switch for us something is either good or it's evil it can't be in between right which is funny because like we are all creatures who are good but also have bad parts to us as well and bad inclinations etc so the biblical authors are much more willing to talk about good and evil in this more robust sense where it doesn't diminish or indict the person who's committing evil in this case god when humans do evil it's bad when god do evil god does evil it's just um and like whether you like it or not that is exactly how the biblical authors talk about god um and so saying something like god is good and and you know that's just plainly true we have to say things like Okay, it may be true, but there's no sense in which it's plain. You have to do a lot of caveating, a lot of uh, describing, a lot of thinking and reflecting before you can figure out in in what ways does that sentence make sense. Um, and you can think of lots of statements about God, like God is all knowing, uh, right? Or God is omniscient, which is a big one that people like to talk about. And I'm like, okay. But God, but the biblical authors describe God as having to come down to Babel to see what's going on. They describe him as having to go down into Sodom and Gomorrah to see if the report that has come up to him is altogether true. And if so, then he will know. Uh, he stops Abram before he kills his son and says, now I know that you fear me. You have not withheld your son, your only son. Um, so the biblical authors are actually very comfortable describing God as figuring stuff out. Now, I don't know exactly what that tells us about what God does or doesn't know. I think by the time you get to the end of Deuteronomy, if you say, does God, what does God know? You pretty much end up in everything land. You know, God, God is all knowing. He seems to know anything that he wants to know at any time he needs to know it. Um, but there at the same time to say that God is omniscient, it jumps the shark, right? You get out above your skis and you're skipping out on all this very rich description of God's interaction with creation where he is figuring stuff out. Uh, now you have to kind of make sense of like, well, why are they describing him that way? What are they trying to do by describing him that way? But to say that God is omniscient as if that's a plain statement that adequately captures all the data so easily sounds to me like somebody who's not reading the scripture itself and, and thinking about what the biblical authors are trying to say, especially since every single one of the biblical authors has the language and the concepts to say God is omniscient. If they if they wanted to describe him that way, they very easily could have used their words to describe him that way, and they don't. Instead, they paint a picture of an all-knowing God, which at some point you're like, is he all-knowing? I don't know. He didn't seem to know what was going to happen in the garden. He said in that day that you're going to die, and yet they didn't die in that day. Um, so... Like, did he not know that was going to happen? Like, Jesus doesn't know the day that he's going to return. Jesus doesn't know what it's like to be a, center, a sinner existentially, right? Like, so there's, the proposition is only as good as all the rich discussion that brings you to the point where you say, this is what I would affirm. And at yeah. that point, it defeats the purpose of having an objective proposition when you have to spend all that time saying why it's objectively true like if your goal is just to have objective statements that just are true no matter what then why would you have statements that you have to spend you know pages and pages of pages writing justifications for why it is true that puts us in the world of reality i would say that puts us in the world that all humans experience 
And I don't know any humans who experience the world objectively, a view from nowhere, as Thomas Nagel describes it. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you touched on omniscience because it's sort of a, it's sort of a, a side question I wanted to ask, but it was maybe the biggest question that I had for implications for what you were talking about uh, about coming to know through relationship um, or in community. Because so I was in the car while I was reading your book, um, working through it. Um, I was driving. My son uh, asked me a question because I, I have this camera, and so I was taking pictures earlier, and he said. You know, of course, he thinks I'm I'm the greatest photographer, right? Because of course, I'm his dad yeah. and I have the camera. He says, "Oh, Dad, do you do you know everything about cameras?" It's like, no, not not even close. Like, I know hardly anything at all. And he said he thought for a minute, and he was like, "Well, but what about the? the does anybody know everything?" I was like, "No." <laughs> and he said, "Well, what about the guy who made the camera?" I'm like, no, even he doesn't know everything about the camera. Um, right. And he might even be a really good engineer, but not necessarily be a, a good photographer. Um, mm. th- but that got me thinking about God and His omniscience. You know, if you're if if you're talking about um, truth not being purely propositional, then there certainly there are things that um, God, it seems, would have to come to know, because there was a time before creation when I didn't exist. Mm how could God truly know me without experiencing me um, if if I'm not just proposition? So yeah. what what implications does does uh, your what you discuss uh, have for for God's omniscience? Well, I mean, we we have to remember a again, and this is this is you're gonna like you're gonna get sick of me saying this, but the biblical authors are offering us an intellectual tradition. And by intellectual, I mean embodied, spiritual, communitarian, ritual, all of it. That's what ancient Greeks meant by intellectual traditions. Not that they had the term intellectual, but that's what they meant by spiritual traditions and wisdom traditions. That's what the biblical authors are offering us. So when we say God is omniscient, my first thought is that's not how the biblical authors describe him. And you might go, well, no, but the the bio, you know, like they didn't under, almost like this we give this primitivist caveman view of the biblical authors like, oh, they didn't under, you know, Iron Age, Bronze Age. They didn't have these sophisticated concepts. Uh, no, actually, they, they again, they had the language and the concepts. If they wanted to describe him that way, they would have. I, the question I would put back is, why don't they just openly describe him as omniscient? And I think this is part of that apprenticeship model. It's an intellectual tradition that forces you to do the work. They give you, you know, the way I put it in a recent book was it's a pixelated argument. It's not a linear argument. They give you lots of pixels about God's knowledge, and they expect that you're tracing those breadcrumbs across the text. And eventually you will arrive at a fully orbed view of God's knowledge. I think what you don't end up, and even Thomas Aquinas, I mean, so he's a medieval theologian, right? Even he is like, you know, God knows everything um, because it's not because his presence is everywhere, but he's like a king in the kingdom. And he, he gives metaphors for God's uh, omniscience as well. Um, so when people get nervous about, well, is God omniscient or, you know, what do you think is God omniscient or not? Um, I would say, uh, what, what do you, what are you worried about that you need God to be omniscient for? Right. That's the first thing. Same with like, like omnipresence. And I'm like, what is your concern? If God is not omniscient, then what happens? What's the the downside to that? And what you usually end up getting is it's all entangled with all of these views of perfections, 
um, which none of which are biblical era. You know, they are neither Old Testament nor New Testament concerns. That doesn't make them wrong. It just means that they weren't concerned about. They're aware of this problem. They weren't concerned about talking about it. Uh, so then the question becomes: How how prescriptive should we take biblical silence on a topic? If I could move it over to a parallel problem, there's no description in the Old or the New Testament, what I call the Hebrew Bible or New Testament, no description of what happens to you when you die. Like zero, right? Um, the best you get is the thief on the cross who Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, which is clearly analogical because we know Jesus went into the grave for three days and then was resurrected. So um, so even when Jesus said that, he did not mean it in any kind of plain literalistic way. He means something else and you kind of have to do the work. Um, so, and that's, that's not interesting because you just say like, okay, the biblical authors didn't talk about what happens after death. They just kind of leave it as this big ambiguous blank spot in their thinking. What's interesting is they're surrounded by cultures who do talk about what happens after death, right? Egypt and uh, Mesopotamia, the Canaanites, they just discovered this big grave and, and the Canaanite grave um, that goes back to Ramesside uh, Pharaoh ship, um, like just discovered it la last year. So everybody is worried about feeding people after death, making sure they get through the judgment after death amongst the gods, having their after death life. Biblical authors, silent. Uh, so what do we take from their silence? And that's, uh, for me, that's the real question I struggle with. So when you talk about omniscience, I'm like, I think what you really want to say is God is all knowing. Um, and I don't need Aristotle to uh, basically explain for me in all the different ways in which he's all knowing. And by the way, like all, um, all views of omniscience are philosophically problematic because you just say like, well, what do you mean? Well, he knows infinitely he knows everything right well which kind of infinity cantorian because there's you know four different types of infinities and they're mutually exclusive from one another so you can't just say yes all of them actually because some of them would rule other ones out so on what basis do you uh do you choose an infinity of infinities or an infinite point on lines or infinite starting point all the way from here to infinity like on what basis do you choose which one of those is analogical to god's knowledge about the universe um so you're going to run in pro problems in every direction you go. So I will then pull back and say, look, if it was good enough for the biblical authors to fix on these points of God's ability to know whatever he needs to know, whenever he needs to know it, his strength, you want to talk about his omnipotence. Uh, he is able to do anything he wants to do uh, when he wants to do it, except for those things he's promised not to do. So he restrains his power and says, I won't do certain things. Uh, and as soon as he does that, then we can't say things like God can do whatever he wants. We're like, nope, actually he can't. He has made treaties with animals and humans in the earth saying he won't do certain things. Um, so we're, we're really not, we're really just talking about the biblical God that we can understand at this point. And the question becomes for me, why do you want to create extra biblical apparatus to talk about God is, is, is what they've given us sufficient. So um, before I came over to Romania, I did a lot of of uh, studying on the Eastern Orthodox Church and mm. um, came to appreciate a lot of a lot of things about them. Um, and one of the things that I appreciated was apophatic thought, which is okay. That that's that's a completely new new concept for me to work through, but it I liked it because it it kind of undermined some of my my desire for certainty and mm -hmm. and uh, you know 
all those objective propositions and and kind of putting God in a box. But you know, as I as I listen to you talk, so it seems like what what you're saying it undermines cataphatic thinking of like you know God is this 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 this, but it seems like it would it also undermines apophatic thinking because you know you, when you were talking about well God uh, God doing evil you know what whatever that means right well the apophatic thought would say well I can say God is not because that that's apophatic so right. does. So now like my mind is, is having trouble because I, I thought that those were kind of apophatic and cataphatic thought was kind of the only two options. And right, now it's right. Yeah. I think, you know, there, there's a way in which the biblical authors are giving to us a God through experience. It's a history of the experience with God um, by which they are constructing a view of God that they think is positive And also, but there's also a lot of, I mean, Deuteronomy 29, 29 or 29, 28 in the Hebrew, it's, uh, the hidden things, it just literally just says the hidden things to Yahweh, the revealed things or the manifest things to us and to our children to do them and keep them. Right. And so there's already this acknowledgement in Deuteronomy 29, uh, one and two and three in the Hebrew, at least starts off with, Hey, I did all these things, these things, but you saw the signs and wonders I did before your eyes in Egypt. Um, basically indicting them. Why haven't you done well? Well, because uh, God has not yet given you a heart to know, eyes to see, or ears to hear. Um, I think actually heart to know, ears to hear, eyes to, eyes to see in that order. Um, and so there really is this hidden God, uh, but what has been revealed is the stuff you have to do and keep in order to see what he's trying to show you, right? And that that seems to be the formula that gets carried all the way through, and including into the New Testament Gospels for sure. And I think my Pauline scholar buddies have said like, yep, that, that continues on in Paul as well. I mean, I thought it did in Paul, but, uh, you know, Pauline scholars have their own ideas about things. But um, so I, I don't, I, I think this is, um, this is a like, if we can talk about spheres of epistemic responsibility, like here are the things that you are responsible to understand and to pursue and inquire and chase about. And I think there are some lines they draw where they just like, nope, this is, you're trying to get behind the curtain. And I, and I think this comes to conspiracy and propaganda. Uh, oh, I'd have to hear what you think about the propaganda side, but that, you know, conspiracies are all built on, let me pull back the curtain and show you what's going on back here which you get in Hellenistic Judaism. So the wisdom of Solomon in the Apocrypha, the pseudo or yeah, the Hellenistic Jewish text, if you want to put it that way, you know, he reverses the Deuteronomic language and he says, God has shown me everything that is both hidden and revealed. So he's like, I got behind the curtain. Let me tell you what's going on back here. Right. Um, but that goes directly against what Deuteronomy is, is selling Israel on. It's like, no, you don't get to get behind the curtain, but I came, I showed you, I gave you these rituals in order for you as a community to become Deuteronomy 4, a wise and discerning people, um, which is, if I could say, that is the goal in every endeavor. We want our children to be wise and discerning, not just spiritual issues. Like if my kid's a filmmaker, I want them to be a wise and discerning filmmaker, good at the knowing which lens to use for which focal depth, uh, good at organizing people towards a project, you know, like wise and discerning for the biblical authors is not spiritual knowledge or you know, if you want to make a spiritual physical divide, it means being a good doctor, a good craftsman. It means uh, wise and discerning in every uh, possible way you can think. It means being skillful, I guess. And so it's applying that skillful language. It's using language used in like 
the you know as one point person one scholar pointed out the language of wisdom is used in the bible both for like sailors how the, how to sail a ship and tie knots etc uh, craftsmen builders mothers infants um that are growing into wisdom and also like knowing god and knowing what god is up to in the world and participating with what what god is up to so yeah it does I, I wouldn't say it's the via media in between uh, Apo and Kata. Uh, Kata, how how did you say it? Uh, cataphatic thought or Cata, cataphatic? Yeah, I was trying to like. It. Yeah, it's like how do I conjugate that yeah. uh, that word? I don't know if it's the middle way. It's a more aggressive way. Um, and it, what it doesn't do is like say, "Ooh, no, this is mystery. You can't know." Right? It actually says, "No, you can know." And you, and not only can you, but you're responsible. And I mean, if you really want to get into it, like the average Israelite is held to a pretty high degree of of responsibility when it comes to wisdom and discernment, uh, so much so that they're supposed to figure out when a prophet who is authenticated with signs and wonders by God is speaking falsely, right? An, an average Hebrew is supposed to be able to, to know, they're supposed to practice the Torah to the extent that they can go, no, that's not right. That's not from Yahweh, uh, which that's a pretty high demand. So it's not that it's just available to them, this wisdom but it's actually required of them. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's really good so far. I need to, uh, I need to start ramping this up so I don't, uh, take too much more time. Um, Oh yeah. You just ramping it up. <laughs> yeah. If okay. you, if you, uh, give me, give me like a 10 minute warning, I'll, uh, it, and yeah, I'll make sure yeah. to, to speed things yeah, up. But, yeah. So I think one one of the things that would be helpful here at this point is because I I can just picture my former self thinking what what are you talking about I can look in the Bible and I can see you know these statements and they're they're clear propositions mm. um, one of the things that you said helped me out a lot where you said that there is no such thing as brute seeing there are mm. no self interpreting events for Israelites to know not even the Exodus plagues nor the miracles of Jesus. That idea of there are no such things as as brute facts. And I, I also loved that you didn't, I mean, I love that you used the Bible, but I also love that you used, uh, how did you say his name? Pollyani? Polani. Polani. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's more straightforward than it sounds, <laughs> okay. than it looks. Yeah. It's just Polani. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I read the whole book with, with, uh, that. Oh, I know. I know. So. Yeah. I did. I did the same thing the first time. So, okay. and then I got around Polani scholars and they're all Polani. I was like, oh. Oh, it's like a saber sabre situation if you know the yeah. office. So yeah. So so that was uh I really liked that you brought in those real world uh examples. But can you talk about brute seeing why why yeah. we feel like we can see in a in a brute fashion and why facts are not that way? Yeah, I mean, and I use the example I, I think I use it in that book. It's been a long time since I've cracked that book open, but um you know, things I, when I'm in class, I'll say, all right, give me an example of a brute fact that everybody in the room would agree with, un, you know, uncontroversial. And the, the, they always think I'm a, a magician because they'll someone will say the sky is blue. And then I go to the next slide and I already have on there the sky is blue. Right. And they're like, how did you know? I'm like, I don't know. It's the one that everybody cites. Right. But, you know, the sky isn't I, li I lived in Scotland for two years. Like they don't know the sky is blue. They think it's gray and rainy all day long. Right. Uh, you're, you're coming to me in the middle of the night. The sky is not blue. It's black or, you know, dark or whatever from the international space station. The sky is translucent looking down. Um, 
And so when we say, or, you know, the, the sky is red at sunset or purple or some other color. So when we say the sky is blue, which we take to be a fact, you know, A, what is sky in reference to me? Uh, do I mean like the, the stratosphere, the exosphere or something like that? Um, and then B, what is even blue, right? 475 nanometer wavelength is the the definition of blue. But, you know, in different cultures, blue is, you know, I lived in Brazil for a little while and they, they include lavender or what I would call lavender in their blue spectrum, what they just call azul. Um, so, yeah, and what we really mean is if you're standing on a particular spot on earth during the right meteorological conditions at the right time of day, the sky will appear blue, but hundreds and thousands of other times and perspectives, it will not appear blue, right? And so again, if the goal is to come up with an uncontroversial fact, me having to caveat it with two dozen, well, in this situation and, th and not in these situations, it defeats the purpose of having an uncontroversial objective fact. B, like, you know, if that's A, here's B. Um, we want anybody who has a skill to see the same facts differently, right? So when I do Bible teaching, I mean, I'll, I'll teach things on Genesis 2 and 3 and, and just an hour on Genesis 2 and 3, and people will often say, I have read that so many times and I never in my life noticed what these very basic things that you're pointing out to me, right? And I'm not a genius or anything. I'm just pointing out what I what I saw when I was a new Christian and some of the things I investigated. And then I'll always say like, were those things always there or did they just arrive when you figured them out, right? And, they, and you know, there's this kind of like, oh, these were always there. I just now noticed them, right? And why did you notice them? Because you had somebody over your shoulder who's already has developed the skill of seeing these things and through some verbal ritual techniques, gets, you know, prod your brain to think about the text in this new way. And now you see things that have always been there that you just never noticed. Um, so in what way did they brutally see the text? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, it's funny because Christians will always push, or I should say modernist American Christians, but also like in South America and in, even in Africa, I've taught, you know, in lots of places. And you'll get people that really struggle with this for for really good reasons they struggle with it, including I did at first myself. Um, and then you just say like, look, thousands and thousands of people saw the the miracle, the signs and wonders that Moses did. They saw the plagues. And yet, and, and the whole purpose of that, you know, you walk through that story and it's so that you will know, so that you will know, so that you will know, so that you will know. And most of the so that you will knows are that Yahweh and not the other gods did this for you. And yet thousands of people, as soon as Moses is gone for a week or two, we don't know how long, they commission Aaron to build a golden calf and have an orgy to it, Right. And the explicit, I mean, the, the language could not be more explicit in the book of Exodus. The whole purpose was not to liberate them from slavery. They are slaves the whole time. They remain slaves after they leave. They're just now slaves to Yahweh rather than slaves to Pharaoh in the house of Egypt. Uh, so the goal wasn't to get them out of slavery. It was to transfer the ownership of slavery. Um, and the stated goal is so that they will know, right, all of these things. And it doesn't work. It doesn't take. And this is Deuteronomy 29. Even though Yahweh did these signs and wonders before your eyes, you saw him with your eyes. Um, and Jesus' miracle, like nobody, it, nobody in the Gospels ever argues as to whether Jesus performed a miracle or not, right? So you want to think about your miracleology, <laughs> like 
Nobody ever says, was that even a miracle? They all are forced to admit this was unnatural, whatever happened. The only thing they argue about is by whose power he does this or whether it was right according to the Sabbath uh, to do these things. Um, and so there you go. Again, you go and you have people who all saw the same thing, but they're interpreting it differently. And if like, if you want to pick something that should be self-interpreting, it would be Jesus healing somebody openly and publicly and unashamedly and telling you what he's doing as he's doing it. Like that would be like the great, I was a children's pastor for years and that would be the object lesson par excellence. And even in that situation, many people saw something very different when they saw the same thing. Um, so what makes the difference? Skilled insight that you, you submit to somebody who says, I'm going to teach you how to see this correctly. I, I can handle electrical problems all on my own. Plumbing is magical to me. I don't understand. It seems so simple, like water just flows through pipes. And then you try to fix your toilet and all of a sudden it gets really complicated and you can't, right? I will pay anybody a lot of money if they come in with the skill discernment. And what I noticed the first time a plumber came in to fix a problem I had created trying to fix it is they saw things that I did not see. They're like, oh, did you did you put that little piece of plastic over the valve that goes on the faucet? The one that probably looks like you should throw it away, but you actually need it. Uh, and they like they instantly thought of pressure and prefer, pressure differentials. So we're seeing all the same pipes. I've spent lots of quality time with those pipes. I've struggled and wrestled and thought and thought and thought. But they apprenticed in a way that they saw those pipes differently from me. And I'm paying them for their sight, right? The, their ability to see the pipes differently than I could. And this is true in every single thing, right? We go to a doctor, we we look it up on WebMD and we're like, okay, I, I think this is what I've got. And then you go to the doctor and they ask you a few simple questions and they're like, nope, that's not it. Here's what's going on and here's why, right? They see the same data differently. And that's what all education and knowing is aimed at, is seeing the same data differently, not seeing new data, same data differently. And I think that leads into maybe what is, at least for... for um you know, the series that I'm doing, what is the most important, but I think also maybe one of the mo most important aspects of your book, because it's like, okay, well, if I can't just look at words, uh, and, and understand propositions, if, um, like the big question is, well, how do I, how do I know anything? And so mm -hmm. you talk about, uh, authentication, um, because that in my mind, that's what everything ultimately comes down to. It's like, well, who, who do I trust? Because if, if I have to come to know through somebody else, um, you know, Paul talks about, well, you know, if an angel of light comes to you, looks, looks really good, looks really holy, looks wonderful, uh, speaks nice words. Why? It seems like I should believe that angel of light. Right. Um, so how do I know? Uh, so when we talk about, uh, you give an example I think of that, that kind of leads us into authentication. You talk about uh, the serpent in Genesis three and um, how, you know, everything that the serpent says does come to fruition. Um, but, you know, his authentication, his, his right to speak is uh, not there. So can you talk a little bit about authority authentication and what that has to do with, with knowledge? Yeah. And even that Paul and the angel, the messenger of light or whatever, you, whatever he's referring to, he's really just tugging on Deuteronomy 13. Again, where God says, I'm going to raise up prophets and uh, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to authenticate them. If you ever want to get shook, read Deuteronomy 13, one through five. 
I'm going to raise them up. I'm going to authenticate them with signs and wonders. And then I'm going to cause them to lie to you and mislead you in order to test you to know whether you love me or not. Right. So the sign and the wonder cannot be the mechanism. That's the mechanism. I would say the sign and wonder is the mechanism that gets you to listen more closely. Right. Um, but it's not the authentication mechanism. So I separate out authority from authentication. The serpent was authority. I mean, the story opens with, and the serpent was the most wise or prudent creature God had ever created. And you get to the end of the story and you're like, oh, that was right. He did actually know everything that was going to happen. The narrator, every word out of the serpent's mouth, the narrator repeats in the story to show it happened exactly as he said it would happen. Um, so he's authoritative, but he's not authenticated. They have no reason to listen to him over, over God outside of this desire that the woman has for wisdom that she's being talked into. And the man's failure to interrupt the serpent's voice and say, no, 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 we're not. This isn't what God said. We're not doing this. Right. Um, so the, I think the question that arose for me, by the way, you know, the book, that book that we're talking about is about error, not because I actually wasn't intending to write about error, but as I was reading through the Torah, kind of trying to figure with the question of like, what do they say about knowledge? The question of knowledge came up much less than people getting things wrong and how risk averse the biblical authors are to getting things wrong when God is trying to instruct us. So a lot of the, what we call the epistemological rhetoric of the Torah and the gospels is really like, Hey, don't, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this, do these things, but make sure and avoid these things. It's, it's avoiding kind of erroneous understanding of the world around them and showing pictures of erroneous understanding and saying, yeah, you don't want to end up like that person over there. Um, so, the question you end up with is uh, who should you listen to? And the answer is going to be, um, well, at least by the time you get to Exodus, Moses. Moses uh, Moses is listening to the burning bush, but then even Moses has to be convinced with the signs, the st you know, the staff, the hand, the blood, the water to blood. But then he has to go convince Aaron of the same thing. And then Aaron and he go to the elders and show them the signs and convince them of the same. And then Aaron and Moses and the elders go to the people of Israel and show them the same thing. Uh, so it, everybody has to be convinced then. And then the irony is the very next passage is, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. And he says, who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice? I don't know this guy, right? Um and then he shows him uh, the signs and wonders, and they're completely inefficacious, right? They don't work at all because they can re replicate them. Uh, and then the plagues push beyond the boundaries of what they can replicate and give them reasons. So God is spending a lot of time. I mean, if you just think about like, why should we listen? You know, I, I usually play in class, you know, uh, the Monty Python skit. Who are you? I'm, well, I'm the King Arthur, the King of England. Um, well, I didn't vote for you, right? Like this kind of like, why should I listen to you? Uh, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is true, but with Moses, he has to be convinced and God takes the time to convince him, even though he pushes back and says, I mean, he tells God, this isn't going to work. What you're, what you're talking about will not work. And like four or five times he pushes back. Uh, we see the same thing with Gideon and God convinces Moses and then God and Moses and Aaron go convince everybody. The only person that is never convinced that the Egyptians are convinced, uh, Pharaoh's court is convinced about Moses. Pharaoh is the only person in the entire book of Exodus that is never convinced that uh, he should do what he, even though he reneges and goes back and forth. Same thing with Jesus. I mean, just take the gospels, you know, there that, that are basically passion narratives with a big introduction to them. Right. Um, 
But that big introduction is all authentication. Like everything is word and deed, word and deed, word and deed, hand in hand, so that nobody who is following Jesus has any excuse not to say, I mean, even the disciples themselves, they say, who is this that even the winds and the seas listen to his voice? But if, uh, if, you, take God, that, yeah, if, you, if you take that Deuteronomy 13, where you know that people can be authenticated yep. and yet be false, like how do you? Yeah, yeah. So this is why I think it's important, especially for our Marcionist brothers like Andy Stanley out there, uh, to understand Jesus is very aware of this problem. And so he knows he cannot do anything that violates the Torah in any way. The only thing he can do is extend the Torah's thinking into his present context. And so he says, I have not come to abolish the Torah. Everything that he does, right? Paul, too, uh, in Acts 21 the brothers think that you're, they're hearing that you're teaching the abrogation of the Torah out to the Gentiles. And he says, no, may it never be, right? They said, well, can you go give an animal sacrifice? I mean, you want to really mess up your theology. Can you, Paul, go give an animal sacrifice in the temple to show that you're not teaching the abrogation of the Torah? And Paul says, yes, I will. And he goes and he gets arrested and sent off to his death from the temple where he was given an animal sacrifice and preaching uh, the gospel at the same time. Okay, so just to to be clear, catch me up to speed here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I went. I no, no I just want to make sure. I want to make sure I get this, and I don't have in my head something that you didn't say. Um, so you you said that a lot of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is about showing you negative examples. Like right. don't don't be like that. So if you take Paul, or if you take Deuteronomy thirteen, it says, "Hey, there might be a lot of people with positive authentication." But then you brought in Jesus' example and you said, yeah, he had positive authentication, but he also didn't end up like those negative examples. He didn't yes. violate the Torah. So it's it's both of those things, positive yes. authentication and a life that that backs up that that individual has been discipled by God or somebody yep. that God sent. They have to practice the Torah, like the, he, the, the book of Hebrews or the, the letter to the Hebrews says like, look, you, you practice all of these rituals, this festival life, you practice the justice and righteousness of the Torah, you should be able to understand Jesus is the fulfillment of, of these things, right? As, as he himself claimed to be. So if Jesus comes along and says anything that doesn't correspond with the Torah, they, they have the right to stone him according to the Torah, which people who didn't take the time to listen to what he was saying or, or take on board, that's what they tried to do. They tried to run him off cliffs and stone him. And in some sense you go like, Okay, I vibe like I you're in some ways you you are thinking like what the Torah wants you to, but um, but the the impulse of the gospels is if you hear what Jesus if you hear him out it's very hard uh, to contravene what he's saying and that's what the Jewish leaders will ultimately say they like no we're not going to listen to this guy anymore because we can't you know they dared not ask him a question again because everything they said to him they realized they had nothing to say against what he was saying. Uh, same thing with Paul, right? Um, it, everything that Paul said explained, it was according to the Torah, he explained to them. Jesus in Luke 24, according to the Torah and the prophets, uh, he explained to them why all these things had to come to pass. Um, so it's that submitting yourself to the Torah's teaching and this Torah's way of life that it's actually evidence beyond the the initial step of, of authentication. I'll, I'll point out also Deuteronomy 18 is the, is the text of the transfiguration, right? Where God, you know, you, you have to say this out loud sometimes when you're teaching it, like it's on a mountain with clouds, just like Sinai, but God's voice descends and he doesn't say 10 things like he does on Sinai, the 10 commandments. 
he says one sentence and he quotes Deuteronomy 18 and in Genesis 22. This is my beloved son, which is Isaac uh, at the sacrifice. Um, to him, you shall listen, which is Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up a prophet in the days to come and I will put my words in his mouth and to him, you shall listen, which is really interesting because the transfiguration, you know, you just came out of a conversation about, is he the Christ or not? Is he the king, this, this kingly figure? And the transfiguration doesn't have kings showing up from the Hebrew Bible. It has two prophets showing up from the Hebrew Bible who were clearly authenticated and like the big prophets of Israel, Moses and Elijah. Um, and so, and G and God, God's voice come down and says, this is the guy you should be listening to now. This is the one Moses was talking about. Um, yeah, it's, it's a remarkable scene especially considering the disciples have been with him for years at that point and God's now having to say, listen to this guy. And you're like, what were they doing up to this point? Right. And they, they weren't listening. And that, that is a lot of the drama of, of most of the gospels that I, I will always point out. Um, there's three groups of people in Israel and sorry, in, in all of scripture who have hardened hearts or described as hardened hearts, Pharaoh and Exodus um, Israel later um, by the prophets uh, when they reject God and his covenant, and then the disciples in, in the gospels. Um, those are the people who are described as having hardened hearts. Um, so even his inner circle is having trouble. They trust him. Where can we go? You have the words of life. Like they know he's worth listening to. They know he's worth following, but they are not yet seeing, you know, it's, it's all stars and no constellations for them at this point. Um, and as you probably know, you get to the end of Mark's gospel and it's still all stars for, there's no constant, like they never figure it out Mark's gospel. So, yeah, um, that was, you know, that was really sobering when you talk about, um, you know, not just the positive authentication, because I, I would relate that to our conversation at the beginning when we were talking about orthodoxy and orthopraxy, mm. where, I think a lot of times uh, my group, evangelicals, but also you know PCA in particular, we we have the authentication, right? We have the Word of God, we have the Bible, and we take that message, um, you know, and it's people's job to listen. But there's so many times that we don't have the um, we we don't have the the positive life that goes with that, the orthopraxy. Um, and, and, and it makes me think of, you know, Jesus said that by this, you shall know that right. they're my disciples and it's not by their, their doctrinal statement. It's by their love for one another. Yeah. And, yeah. The uh, living of the Torah. Uh, and I mean, you think about all the issues that are coming to surface with leadership in the church, uh, narcissistic pastors, people who are spiritually abusing their congregations, even in soft ways, not even, you know, like sexually abusing, but just like using manipulative tools um, and how much veneer is put on of like living, being a nice person, being the right person. So, yeah, it's this the walk and talk are the authentication. And notice now we can make sense of the truth language because truth, we don't say they're authenticated, they're true, and now they're good to go. Right. It's like, no, true is over time and circumstance, they prove to be faithful to the thing that they ought to be. And that would include pastors. I mean, this is First Peter 5. Uh, you know, you as fellow elder and the shepherd of the flock, you know, shepherd the flock, don't lord it over them. Don't do it under compulsion. The chief shepherd is coming over time and circumstance. You need to be true to the the calling of pastoring or shepherding, I guess is the the, the term there. 
So, so truth, truth talk really makes a difference here. It's not talk. It's truth. Truth is walk, not talk. If I can put it that way. Yeah. So maybe you can help resolve a question that I've had for years and uh -oh. I've posed, posed to a lot of people <laughs> and I just, I, I can't get an answer because I don't, I don't think anybody's comfortable with, with what it seems like one of the answers has to be. So I, I know, um, there, there's a lot of canceling out of, um, certain people, you know, uh, people being pulled from bookshelves. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. So let's just give, give an example, like in, in evangelical circles, you'd get somebody like Matthew Vines. He is, he is a practicing, is, so. he's a practicing homosexual. Oh, oh yeah. I actually, I do know who he is. Yes. Yeah. And so they, they would be like, no, we, we cannot uh, read his books and learn from him simultaneously. Uh, you know, I've got, I've got guys in, in different groups who talk about how inspirational, somebody like uh Whitfield or uh Edwards John uh, Edwards yeah slaveholders are and and I'm thinking man that's so do I can I not learn from from anybody who doesn't walk according to the way that we think people should walk biblically or can we learn from everyone? We just, we can throw out the stuff that's bad, but in our conversation here, it seems like if you don't have the walk, then yeah, I mean, it's not that you can't still say true things. It's just, I would, I would not put myself under apprenticeship to you. Yeah. Um, so I have had this, this, this is my dilemma too. Cause you know, like I, I did some of my PhD work on BART and um and right about the time well later bart it came out that bart had this mistress and he mistreated his wife horribly and you know all of these problems not that i was a bardian in any way uh mine was mostly a critique of bart but that threw a lot of people who were bart scholars like uh like should we be studying this guy who's now or john howard yoder you know who is this pacifist who turns out he was quite violent in his aggression towards women around him or at least you know sexually he was aggressive um yeah, I, I really do think at the end of the day, um, there is, I think there, you can think of like uh, uh, Elisha or um, or even Peter. I mean, look at Peter. So he, you know, he's kind of a putz in the gospels and then he seems to get it in Acts. And then you read the very final comment from Paul and he's like, I still had to put Peter in his place because he wasn't, he was refusing to hang out with the Gentiles uh, in his letter to the Galatians. So it's a mixed verdict on Peter. So he's not walking out. Like, I mean, if you, if you learn one thing from Jesus is this is for, for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And Peter seems to not be walking that out uh, to the fullest that he should be. Um, so I think there's a little grace built into the system. But if you, you know, if you find out, for instance, that your pastor who seems like they're a great, nice person and you get me, you know, like you come on staff and you figure out, oh, here's how the sausage is made. And you realize it's all about appeasing this person who's being maniacal and manipulative. Then I, I do think there are thresholds where you say, like, you know what, this person's teaching cannot be trusted um, because it's too enmeshed with not walking out this Torah life. Um, the basics, right? Justice and righteousness, fairness, reflectiveness, accountability, looking out for the vulnerable people in your congregation. Um, if you're manipulative and spiritually abusing, like automatically you're not you're not looking out for the vulnerable which what clearer command is there across scripture than heeding uh what you're doing or sorry submitting what you're doing to um 
to the detriment of the vulnerable in your communities. So, uh, so I think there are certain thresholds where you just say like, you know what, this person's teaching cannot be trusted. Uh, and of course, a lot of those people who've fallen under that rubric, you know, we could name names here, but you can just think of people who were really big and then they kind of fell from grace for one reason or another. And then you don't see them coming back and repenting and saying, I missed, I messed it all up. I wasn't walking the walk. I wasn't talking the talk. What you see is them like quietly becoming a pastor somewhere else in Arizona, like a year later or something like that, you know, like off the grid and everybody's going, should we let this person pastor again? So I, I, yeah, I would say absolutely that, that it actually, it has to be a criteria. I mean, I don't know how you could read Paul of all people read Paul and think that he wouldn't absolutely think that your walk is your, is your orthodoxy. Uh, in many ways, it is your authentication mechanism. Yeah, that that's hard because I mean, Yoder was one that I didn't know about his history, and he was he influenced me through the politics of Jesus and some of his other stuff. Mm. And then I found out, yeah, you, know, you you have that question where, well, you know, I, so they might be saying something, you know, like they say a broken clock is right twice a day, and I and I have to explain to Gen Zs what that means because they only know digital clocks. Uh, but the the there is a sense in which somebody can be tapped into truth. Like, you know, we'd say, I would say my atheist colleagues that I work with who are biblical scholars, you know, most biblical scholars are not religious people, right? They're atheist, agnostic, or something else. Um, but many of them see, like, they show me things in the scripture that I didn't understand before, right? Um, so I think there's a way in which you could say, you can be on to truth, but whether you like submit to that person and like apprentice under them and say, this is the way, you know, this is going to be, a discipler for me? Maybe not. Um, so it, transgression of the Torah's principles is transgressing what it means to be a human. And so if somebody's doing that systematically, or it's been, they've been enabled and fostering that kind of disposition, I, it, for me, it's a no-go. And maybe I'm just being conservative. I'll just play it safe and say like, I know plenty of other people who are not famous, who walk the walk and I'll, I'll go with them. Yeah. And, you know, talking about the, the oppressed, I thought it was ironic. Um, you know, a lot of the examples that you can think about of people who were authenticated were the oppressed. You know, you think of Moses and the Israelites being the people who could help Pharaoh see, or you think of some of the prophets, you know, they're, they're eating over dung coals and right, stuff. Right. Uh, Walking they, naked through poor. the cities. The people who see Jesus for who he is, you know, blind right. Bartimaeus and 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 stuff. And you're like, oh, okay. So not only do we oppress these people, but oftentimes it's it's those people who are the ones who would would help us to see. They're the prophets. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And yeah, that diversity. Of, I mean, even that, just stating those examples, you're already seeing like it's objectively true that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, you're like, well, if you coordinate all the perspectives of those people who did tend to get it, the marginalized and the the, the disabled, um, like, yeah, you could see that. Uh, and it's really easy over the shoulder of the omniscient narrator of the Gospels to see that. Uh, a little bit trickier when you're in the situation, right? Um, so, yeah, there is a certain disposition that allows, I mean, um, you, you, could, you could cite all kinds of poetry at this point, like the contrite spirit and uh, walk humbly and do justice. Like that, there is a certain disposition that makes for a better seer of the kingdom of God. Um, and and my experience is that um, God is always willing to tear people down to that disposition when He needs. To. Like I tell my students, 
look, it's humble yourself or get humiliated in order to be used by God. Like those are your, really your two options for most people. So I'm going to go with humble myself as often as I can, knowing that I probably need to be humiliated about a few things in order for God to use me. And I don't mean that in like a shaming way. I mean, like properly uh, find my place so that I can understand what God's trying to say to me. And right. I probably do need to leave really soon. So. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. This is the last question. Um, and if you need to go, that's okay. Yeah, no, we're, we're good. I just, just making sure my wife is not texting me. <laughs> okay. The only text that matters. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Um, so you talk about the disciples and how their lack of comprehension, you said that their lack of comprehension is mitigated by either their failure, failure to listen or their failure to participate. And when I was reading through uh, some of the stuff, it, it seemed like a, a chicken and the egg sort of thing where it's, you know, well, I'm not going to listen to you until you're authenticated. But for me to see your authentication, I kind of have to participate and listen with you. Um, right. And so it got me thinking when uh, my wife was taking apologetics classes, uh, one of the terms that came up, I love, you know, the the topic of free will and um one of her her professors brought up doxastic volunteerism, and I had no idea what that was. Yeah, but um, you know, it's just this this concept that um, we we can't really choose what we like. Like, you know, I didn't like beer, but by participating by partaking in beer, I began to like it. But I had to participate before I could I could like it and see that it was good. Right. right. Um. So. It, it kind of reminded me of that when you talk about participating and listening. Uh, how how is it? How do you start to act before you have knowledge? Um, and, and then how does how does acting on something and participating produce a knowledge? Could you talk a little bit about that? I'm not sure if the question makes sense. Yeah. No. I think uh, I think that again is kind of isolating knowledge as like one single act or something. So I would say I would put it this way. Biblically speaking, if you think of biblical faith as someone closing their eyes and stepping off a cliff, you know, that's what a lot of people in the street would say. Right. And I'm like, well, you know, when I teach class, I ask, well, what do you think it means, you know, to have biblical, like religious faith? And, uh, you know, they'll say something like that. You just trust no matter what blind, you blindly trust. I'm like, okay, well, we're getting ready to read a bunch of stories where nobody blindly trusts God and God plays ball, right? He's like, okay, you don't, you don't blindly trust me. Great. We can work with that. So, you know, I would just point out the patterns in scripture. God doesn't come up to people out of nowhere, except for Abraham. Abraham's the one exception, but I assume something like this is going on because the pattern is so strong. He doesn't come up people out of nowhere and say, Hey, do this thing. He says, uh, and even with Abraham, he says, do this thing. But then there's all kinds of other things where Abram pushes back. He says, you know, um, I'm going to give you this land to possess. And Abram's like, oh, yeah, how can I know that you're going to give me this land to possess it? And then he does that weird ritual, right? But even that, the presumption is now that I've given you a viable historical reason to believe that I'm going to give you this land, you need to trust me, right? Um, and God comes to Abram, I don't know how many times, three, five times, making the same promises over and over again at various periods in his life. Uh, and the same thing with Moses, right? The, the pushback of Moses is reasonable to God. He's like, okay, yeah, I can see. I can see why you wouldn't trust that. And he goes along with them. But the but the implication is, and he actually eventually does say, all right, enough, stop it. Uh, I'm sending you in. The implication is now that I've given you really good historical verifiable reasons to trust me, 
you need to trust me. Um, and you know, you can just go down the line. Same thing with Jesus, right? Like his frustration with his disciples is, you know, now you feed them, right? Uh, the first time he said it, you can imagine he's like, okay, this, I know what's going to happen. You're, you guys are going to freak out and say, where are we going to get all this food? Right. Uh, that's why I love Mark's gospel. The second feeding, he says, all right, now you feed them. And they're like, how are we going to do this? That's when you're like, okay, I'm with you, Jesus. I understand why you're frustrated why they, with these people. Cause he's given them the, he's shown them in person exactly how this can happen. Um, so I think when you say the chicken and egg, I'm like, well, not really. It's like chicken, 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 and now egg, right? Um, and that willingness of, the, I mean, if you want to talk about the ancient scheme, Mesopotamian, Egyptian, Greco-Roman, Hittite, anything, like ancient schemes of how gods interact with humans, there ain't nothing like this in the ancient world where God has extends such what we call grace and mercy, that a God would even care about these people, that a God would interact with them, that he would reason with them the way they need to be reasoned with. Gideon, you know, you can think again of, okay, I messed up. I gave the sign of the fleece, but that could have happened naturally. Can you reverse the sign, right? God's like, okay, he did it, right? Um, so that pattern, and I say this with people I disciple too, like, look, if you need to be convinced, because I was that person, I need to be convinced. And I was like, I finally got... And again, I finally got desperate enough and fed up enough with my own life where I was finally like, all right, God, if you're real, now's the time to see it. I want to like, show me who you are. And he did. Like it was a real, verif it was only verified. I could tell you, but you wouldn't believe it, right? I could tell you what happened to me. Um, but other people saw like, hey, you really like, what happened to you? You really changed, right? And if that were it, fine. But then there were other things along the line. I saw other people go through the same thing. I have real historical verifiable reasons why I trust God. Um, and it wasn't, and if it was just that one time when I was 19 years old, I wouldn't be a Christian today. I'd be like, you know, I believed a lot of crazy stuff when I was 19 years old. That was just another one. But it, it comes again and again and again. So I think that pattern we see in scripture that I think God is still willing to commit himself to today through the Holy Spirit is um, is one worth trusting. But I always tell people like, look, it's not my job to convince you that God is real. That's actually his job. I'm only like Paul who believes that you might be the elect from before the foundations of the earth. But the only way I can find out is by telling you about this stuff and seeing if God does something right. And, and, you know, going out and telling and being unashamed of the power of the gospel to reveal who the elect are. And, right. and again, I'm not going all Calvinist. I'm just using the, the language of Paul. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. And uh... yeah, no, it's great. These are great questions. I haven't talked to, I've, I've never in a podcast talked about my first book. So oh, this yeah. was really fun and to have somebody who read it so carefully and understood it. That's, this is fantastic. Well, I, I wouldn't say I understood it. I, I tried to read oh, it yeah. carefully. Well, that's my fault. Cause it was my first <laughs> book. And no. it was, you know, this is what happens when you get your first book published. You, you think this might be it. This might be the last book I ever get published. So it's, it becomes a, everything in the kitchen sink, uh, kind of a book. So that's probably why it was, um, and it wasn't particularly well-written either. So that's my fault if you didn't understand it. Uh, of your uh, more recent works, do you have any recommendations? Well, I mean, the book I love uh, that is my baby child, wife too, uh, but they're nerdy books, but you can right. handle them. Uh, Knowledge by Ritual, which is all about ritual epistemology and how only the Hebrews in the ancient world would say, do this ritual in order that you might know. Like that's that's unique to the Hebrew Bible in the ancient world. Um and then thinking why rituals are such a big deal. And again, connecting them to the scientific enterprise. 
Um, and then my recent book with Cambridge University Press is is basically an argument that if we're to be really honest, the biblical tradition is an intellectual tradition. And again, intellectual means community, ritual, spiritual, understanding the nature of reality. There's a, there is a better way to understand the nature of the kingdom of God and the reality we live in. And that requires an entire intellectual formative community that we don't want to make the Bible that we we'd rather go to Augustine or, you know, any, anything later, right? Augustine, John Edwards or whatever, but we're not taking Christians are not taking the Bible seriously enough. Even when they say they are, they're actually not. So that's an argument for the Bible as a, a philosophy. So it's called biblical philosophy. I did not name it that that was Cambridge. I was like, Ooh, that's a bold, spicy title, but that's yeah, better, better that, than so. QAnon something, right? <laughs> QAnon chaos in Christ. Yeah. But I, but I'm going to pick that up when it comes out. So thank you. All right. Me too. I can't wait to read the other essays. <laughs> yeah. All right. Have a great night. All right. Peace to you. That's all for now. So peace. And because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.